0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We are studying Genesis 1 through 11, and we have come to chapter 3, probably uh, the most informative, if not the most important chapter in the Bible, as it gives us necessary foundations for understanding the world in which we live, the situation we find ourselves in, really answers a myriad of questions. We've come to the beginning of Genesis, and we learn that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. The only thing that wasn't good, at least for a moment, was Adam being alone. So God created Eve from Adam, not from the ground, but from Adam, and all was very good. Paradise was established at with Adam and enhanced with the creation of Eve as his counterpart, his helpmate. They were God's vice regents of creation. Small kings and queens, you might say, meant to have dominion over the earth as God's representatives, to be sure that the earth was kept and tended, and that things multiplied, and God would provide for that in its cre- in the way He created it. And Adam and Eve would be uh, the figures of God on earth to lead. But an intruder came into the garden uh, by the vehicle of a snake or a serpent. The intruder was Satan, and Satan's sole purpose is to rob. God of his glory. That's never been any different. He always comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Steals, in this case, or tries to steal God's glory, tries to kill man's soul, and tries to destroy the beauty of God's creation. Through the serpent, Satan spoke words of deception to Eve, and we note in the text as we studied it, Adam was there, In retrospect, as soon as the serpent uttered his first words, Adam should have charged forward and expelled the serpent from the garden, but he did not. As the serpent talked to Eve and Eve struggled with a clear handle on God's word with the pressure of the serpent and the conniving of the serpent, Adam stayed silent and apparently just observed. We read in the sixth verse of the third chapter, the chapter we're looking at now, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This fall from the state of innocence happens in this complex of events. From that moment, nothing would ever be the same for them or any other human being who would ever live. Humankind was fundamentally altered, changed at that moment. Humankind goes from The pinnacle of innocence and intimacy with God and with each other to the pit of guilt and estrangement with God and with each other. Pathetically, they sew together some fig leaves to cover themselves as they felt shame and they felt guilt now. They knew they were guilty. They no longer sought fellowship with their Creator, but they were scared now of their Creator. And they didn't want to be in His presence. That brings us to our passage today, still in chapter 3, Now in the aftermath of humankind's fall into sin, the foundation to true anthropology, the study of man, why we are the way we are, man's nature. Here as I read God's word, Genesis 3, I'll start at verse 8 and I'll finish at verse 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we... Feel the weight and the effect, the heaviness of the tragedy relayed in this passage. No matter how many times we read Genesis 2 and 3, we are still set back by the gravity of the actions undertaken by Adam and Eve, our parents, our first parents. Mostly because we know all too well the miseries of sin and death that are part of humanity now, this side of the fall. We are studying where it began. Now, O Lord, give us special attention to this sacred text by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding of your truth. And please also help us to walk according to the second Adam and not the first. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we have come to the right place in order to answer the most important questions there are to ask. Um, The running wisdom of the day, and this is not uncommon throughout history, the running wisdom is that mankind is generally good if left on their own. It's all these things that happen that make us evil or do evil things. You're not born that way. You're born innocent, and mankind's really good. Ultimately, man's goodness will triumph. Now, not only that, is that biblically untrue, quite the opposite is taught by Scripture. Everywhere demonstrable, it's exactly the opposite. The more people think they're good, the worse it gets on the earth. It's because people think they are good that it gets worse on the earth. So it's necessary at the most foundational level for the people of God to clearly understand biblical anthropology. What the Bible says is true about mankind. And then judgment starts in the household of God. We've got to recognize this is true. And then what redemption does to address this. And the hope we have because of that redemption. And it has to start in the body of Christ and work its way from here. If there is any earthly hope to see there to be real good, real peace, real unity on earth to happen. Or to see at least it happen in pockets. It has to happen with the right view of God and man. And we find it here in this passage, at least at its base level. What questions does this passage answer? Why are things so messed up? Why is there so much sin and rebellion in the world? Why do so many people deny that God exists or shake their fist at their semblance of whoever they think he is? Why do people struggle as they do? Why is there sickness, disease, and suffering? Why do the nations rage like they do? Why is there injustice? Why do people act so selfishly? Why is marriage such a struggle? Why do people argue and fight with one another? Why do people try to gain power and force their will on others? Who is the devil, and what is his legacy? What is the nature of our flesh? Why are we so sinfully prideful, and what does that mean for the world? The Word of God is the place to go when seeking to understand the nature of mankind. A study of anthropology, to be accurate, has to start with the creator of mankind. We can't know the essential basics about mankind by simple observation, there's observations that can be helpful. We'll recognize what they tell us, but they don't tell us everything. We have to know something of the basic nature of people. So our anthropology has to be informed by God's word. If there's any hope for answers to these important questions that I just posed. Some years ago, when I was working at the seminary that I went to, I was on the grounds crew. There was a man there who managed the property and I worked for him. He was really good at making little handwritten maps of different parts on the property and giving that map to one of us workers to go take care of something. There were trees, there was the lawn, um, there was various landscaping, flower beds, so forth and so on. And he would draw pictures, 40 acres, and he would draw these little pictures with a felt tip pen, very detailed. Usually before we got in, after our classes were over, he would go out to the site, write it out for us, explain what we need, he needed us to do. Very, very detailed, very careful. These were You could almost publish these maps that he wrote. Now, this is the mid '90s, way back before they ever had the ability to do this on computers and give it out. So this is hand handcrafted instruction. Well, the thing that always kind of stuck in my craw a little bit is this major. It was it's the size of our bulletin when you open it up. This piece of paper that had a map of the whole seminary grounds on it with every detail. At least that's what it looked like, but it was blurred out and it was discolored and some of the sections on it were kind of messed up. You could see it still and it was a big map and I could make it out because I knew what it looked like. But I just thought this is the oddest thing that he gives us the copy, this, this version when he's so careful about the handwritten copies that he does. Well, the story behind it, as I found out, is that he had done it two years ago. He spent almost two weeks putting together this very careful diagram of the whole of the seminary grounds, 40 acres. But he gave it to one of the guys to go up to the administrative building to run copies off. On his way up, he dropped it on the ground, and there was snow on the ground. It got wet, and then it smudged, and it smeared, and it kind of melted in, and it didn't look just quite right. But he spent all this time on it. There's no backup copy for it. So we just had him run it off the way it was. And for a couple years, we used that messed up copy, that map of the grounds. We knew where it was. We can tell what it was. But it wasn't right. It was messed up. Adam and Eve are that original copy that was on the way to the administrative building. But it got dropped. They dropped. Every copy since is affected by the change in their nature that happened at the fall. And that 's you, that 's me, all of us are affected by our first parents. No one can escape that, not unless God does something to change it. We are stuck in that nature, that nature that comes from the first pattern, the first the first chief copy, and everything else is a copy since, and we suffer under what happened at the fall. in that sense, we are there, They are federal heads, as we say it, representing us there, and then we all sense that in our daily lives and the things we struggle with. So what we see in this passage by the first behaviors of Adam and Eve after the fall, these are behaviors that belie their new nature, their fallen nature. So the behaviors we'll recognize in our own lives, they translate to things that we do in our own lives. We'll see why. We know we feel these ways or we do these things or we act in such a way. This comes from our fallen nature. These things come from their fallen nature. Now, in a few passages, when we get there next week, Lord willing, we'll see some specific disciplines that occur that also have an effect going forward. But right now what we witness is just what's coming out from their new disposition before God as their souls died upon sinning as they did. So with this, we go to the passage, and we see that even though this is humankind at the bottom of the pit, you still see God's sovereign mercy and God's sovereign grace shining the brightest as we come through this passage, through this terrible confrontation, at least terrible from our embarrassed sense of what it must have been like to now have to face God after this. But what you'll notice at first point is that God is merciful in that confrontation. He has every right to come down immediately and judge. But notice what unfolds, and let's walk through the passage together. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Moses could not have been clearer about the peaceful sense in which God was walking. For God's part, he wasn't coming in anger. It's not that God was unaware. He knew what had happened. But the description is clear. God is coming in con- total control of, of emotion, of sense of, of anger that might be riled over sin. We don't sense that in his approach, in the way he is figuratively walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard him in this sense. So right away we notice that God meets Adam and Eve in this way, indicating his merciful demeanor. Now, the reason why I point this out here, it's so important at this root level, there are other places in Scripture you're aware of where God comes in immediate judgment. He could have done that here, that he would completely been within his rights. even makes sense to us as we think about it. But he doesn't. Now, in other cases, think of the time in the Tower of Babel, just a few chapters from here. Where they erect this tower as basically a rebellion against God that we 're going to go we 're we're not going to spread out and multiply we 're going to build a tower, and if you send a flood we 've got a tower to get up in that 's what we 'll do it 's in the face of God, and so God sees that, and using the same language used at creation where he said, "Let us make man and woman in our image, He says in Genesis eleven Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Immediate judgment, no delay, right to it. We're going to go down. Here, though, in the passage before us, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool in the garden in the cool of the day. Much different picture. Gentle, peaceful presence of God described. But guilt and shame on the part of Adam and Eve, when we have guilt and shame, our comprehension of God is different. And that's what we see is one of the first impacts of the fall. Their comprehension of God completely changes. Now they're scared of him. Now they don't don't want him in their life. They want him out. They don't want him to see. They want him to be away. And notice what they do. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Wearing these pathetic fig leaf outfits, they try to hide themselves. Where? in the trees that God created so that the fruit of those trees, all except for one, all the other trees they could eat from. And they try to hide from those trees that God made wearing pieces off of those trees as if they could hide from God. David, of course, captures in Psalm 139, where can I go to hide from you? You can't go anywhere. But our comprehension of God is so affected by the fall that the first response is to hide themselves. Their spiritual death was showing its fruit. And I think we do well to observe this post-fall behavior as it informs us about our own nature. Their fallen natures make them ashamed and guilt-ridden. Where there was transparency before God and before each other, now there's no want for that transparency. They don't want God to see them now, and it makes a rift in their relationship that starts to grow. There is a certain amount of enmity now developing between each other, as the enmity with God was very clear. But still, notice verse 9. God still is merciful in his confrontation. He's basically giving opportunity for Adam to step up and say what happened. It says in verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, of course he knows where Adam is. But Adam's hiding. And he's graciously, rather than, I got you, I caught you, I see you. Where are you? It's, it's really a way of saying, In a gracious way, why are you here? Why are you here? He's speaking in a merciful tone to sinners, to guilty sinners. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, The first thing that struck me when I was reading it is maybe the way we approach our children. I know the way I've approached my children. Like we have important rules that are there for a reason. But maybe sometimes um, when they break those rules, our approach, I know my approach has been at times, I got you. You did this. Why did you do this? Why are you doing this? Rather than this gracious, patient approach. It's not to ignore, but rather the approach allows them to think on, and if God's spirit works, thinking now in our terms, the spirit works to give them opportunity for repentance by the way you lead in the questioning, rather than, I caught you. Why'd you do this again? Why'd you do this to me? This could be true also in our relationships with each other. When someone sins against us, strike, strike one, you're out. You, I, I, I caught you. Rather than this patience that God has, knowing he's been offended, to give opportunity. He's not going to ignore the offense, but opportunity. The Lord said to the man, where are you? There's opportunity for Adam to answer truth, truthfully. What could he have said? I have sinned, and it's awful the weight I'm bearing. I have sinned. At least that's what you might say he should say, but we know from the nature now, There's an inability to even recognize this. But God puts forth demonstrating really the depth of how far the fall has gone. And we see what Adam says now, evidencing this more. Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The facts only now from Adam. It's not an admission of guilt. Yes, his best answer would have been, I've sinned. But we have his answer. His new demeanor towards God causes him to say, You caught me. Here I am. I, didn't want to I don't want to be around you. I don't want you to see me. That's his new demeanor towards God. Closed and ashamed. No longer open and transparent. Distrustful, self-assured. Get away from me. I want on my own. Rather than trusting and reliant. This is post-fall anthropology. And we have to acknowledge it. Apart from God, we don't want him. We don't want God in our natural being. No one does. And so when even as believers, when we fall into sin, still believers, we're not unsaved, but we can struggle with this, I'm going to hide from God now. I'm going to hide from the people of God. I'm going to hide from accountability that God has appointed. Then God answers with a question again, and it's another gracious part of this confrontation. Look at verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again. I realized I'm naked because of the sin. And yes, I ate from the tree. That's what we would say would be the right answer. But his new nature is is moving him in a different direction. A merciful approach by God for sure. But that's how our sinful nature works. Post-fall, we never repent on our own. We never confess our sins on our own. The reason why you know repentance is a saving grace is you couldn't have done it. If you find yourself repenting of sin, I'm sorry for the sin I've committed, that ain't you. That's God, and you should give praise to God that the gospel has had its root and seed in you. It is has demonstrated. If you feel the sense of your sin and your weight, that is not you in post-fall self, or in, in pre-fall self. That's post-fall in Christ, The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, Adam could have said, the devil did it, I did it, Eve did it. He doesn't say any of that. You say, wait, he does say Eve did it. No, No, that's not really what he says. Look again. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He's not blaming Eve, not straight up. He's blaming God, that's clearly. Remember what he thinks of Eve, back in chapter 2. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was enraptured with her. She was his complement. She completed him. And now we have the woman that you gave to me. She's the one that gave me the fruit and the tree of Listen, Adam knew God's word. Adam knew his responsibility to tend and to keep. Adam knew his requirement not to eat of the designated tree. He knew that Eve was God's answer to his being incomplete. Incomplete on his own to carry out the mission of tending and keeping. Adam knew Eve was his counterpart, his helper, his complement. Adam knew the words that deceived Eve were wrong. He heard them. Adam failed to act at that moment. Adam joined in the rebellion against God. But when confronted by God, he blames the woman whom you gave to be with me. So, he blames God. He says, this is your fault. Why are you talking to me about this? She's the one who brought the fruit to me. The one you gave to me. It's you. If you had not given her to me, I would not have had this opportunity. You're the one who sinned, God. Adam is demonstrating fallen human nature's posture with God. It is that bad. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, turns to Eve, what is this that you have done? The woman said, and she's more honest and straightforward than Adam. Again, demonstrating the reason why the Bible correctly gives Adam the chief blame as the head of the race for falling willingly. The serpent deceived me and I ate, she said. That's true. Adam blamed the woman, Eve blamed the devil. Blame is what we do this side of the fall. We're all victims. Nonstop victimhood. That's who we are. That's a result of the fall. Blaming everybody else is a result of the fall. It may be true that other people contribute. There's no question. But I promise we've all contributed enough. We've collectively contributed so much we find ourselves in this situation where we're victimizing each other all the time. That's the new world order, this side of the fall. We see the deeper level on the, of guilt on the part of Adam, though no question as this unfolds. Both are guilty, but Adam is the leader, and as a leader, failed in his leadership from the moment the serpent opened his mouth. Maybe earlier than that. When we sin at a certain level, think about any sin we might commit. When we sin, at that moment we act as though God does not exist. Because if he knew he existed, he was right there over, we wouldn't sin. If you were right in the presence of the living Christ, you would not say something mean to the person next to you. It's the idea that the living Christ isn't actually there, or that God isn't there, or that ultimately what can he really do? That's all laden into what shows up in the behaviors of Adam and Eve post-fall. That's the result of the fall. When caught in sin, we then try to hide it or minimize it. We shirk any kind of accountability. We try to cover our shame and our guilt with our own pathetic excuses or pathetic constructions of lies. Shame and guilt make us want to cover ourselves relationally with each other. And one lie leads to another lie and another lie and another lie. And that's what happens to Adam when God asks him some some basic questions. There is a dividing wall of separation that goes up between God and man at the moment that the fall occurred. And this means there's a dividing wall of separation between man and man man and woman in this case, in, their first, in this first marriage. It's no longer transparent. They're not naked and unashamed, but rather now they're covering themselves and they're ashamed. They're full of guilt. It's rightly been said that every marital difficulty can be traced to this moment, but I would only expand it to say that every interpersonal difficulty, every interpersonal conflict that we have can be traced to this moment. What we witness here is the result of our fallen nature. It's a behavior that comes from our fallen nature. And we have to start with the first offense being with God, and then it affects how our relationship is with each other. Recently, um, I have a friend of mine who I met about five years ago. Um, He's a handyman, uh, and he can fix anything, as he does for a living. I met him playing pickup hockey not far from here in Overland Park. He's an unbeliever. Um, He's married, or he's not married to a woman that has his child, and he's been with her for five years. And uh, he was telling everyone, you know, uh, handing out cigars at one of the games about having his child, which is great. We we all celebrated that. He was over at my house one day about a month ago, and I was sitting at the table working while he was working on something related to our sink. And he started asking me some questions just about marriage. Uh, we had just passed, or I think it was, he saw something on the counter about our. Marriage being 28 years and such. She goes, Boy, that's a long time. How, how could you be married that long time? He's asked me about marriage. I said, By the way, are you thinking of getting married to your girlfriend anytime soon? And he goes, You know, I don't know about that. I, if I, as soon as I marry her, then things are just going to get different. You know what I mean? They could just get different. And right now, things are okay. You know, they're fine. We, she works hard. I work hard. We have our child together. And it, it's, I, it's, I don't think I really need to get married to make that different. And I started going at the angle of marriage counselor. I started telling him all these reasons why it's good for the child, it's good for her, it's good for you, it's a marriage, and I'm talking about the, and he's looking at me and he's kind of blank looked at me. At some moment I thought to myself, I'm starting on the absolutely wrong level with him. The problem with him at that moment in his life, the problem with all of us at that moment of our life, is he's not right with God first. It really doesn't matter about his relationships with people until that relationship is fixed. And the reason why I knew it's even true is he started saying things to me and I was being convicted about the angle I was taking. He told me of how abused he was as a child. He had multiple parents in and out of his house because his mom was married to multiple people and it came in and it came out. And that was his view of things. And it cost him greatly in his own life. He was, he was abused terribly. He was just spilling all these things and how he didn't trust anybody really. And he had reason not to trust anybody. And he was afraid, even though she's a good girl, from all he, I can tell, he told me, um, I don't know what will happen when we do get married. Right now, I mean, we, we have this that binds us together. But if we get married, maybe that wouldn't be the same. And he was so worried, so insecure because of all the relationships, all the ways in which things were done wrong to him had really crafted the way he looks. And he admitted many things he had done wrong to others as a result of seeing it. He didn't even trust himself completely. And he's talking about all this disarray in relationship that caused him to never think of marrying her, even though they had a child. The issue isn't that. The issue is he was at unrest with God. He did not, does not know God and doesn't have an a, ability to sense that peace that you get from your father, you don't, where that shame is removed. And you don't even know you have it under the fall, but it's there. I was able to share with him quite a bit. I walked through what the gospel means. I even talked a little bit about the second Adam with him. And he tracked with me, and the story is to be continued, I hope. And we'll continue to discuss it. But it really addressed in my own mind the reason why we do the passing of the peace. We do the passing of the peace not as an intermission, but rather as a moment in the service where we've gone through a certain part of the liturgy that reminds us of our sin, the holiness of God, our sin, our need for salvation. We confess our sins to God because God works that confession in us. We confess, we hear the words of assurance, we sing unto him, and then we pause for a moment because now that we know and we're reminded of our being right with God through Christ, we can now be right with each other and we pass that peace to others because we can. You can't before this problem of the fall is rectified. That's what we learn at a very foundational level what's happening. Now, with less time devoted, let's look at these last two points and we'll see how uh, the rest of the confrontation unfolds. He confronts, God confronts Adam first, then he confronts Eve. Then when the whole situation is ascertained, and of course talking anthropomorphically, it's not that, that God didn't know what was happening, but like a judge gathering the facts and now turning to the different people with the different verdicts the decisions. He goes first to Satan, verse 14 and verse 15, right away to Satan. No question to Satan, because there's no chance for redemption for him. Satan is the enemy of God, wants to rob God's glory. There is no uh, such redeemable feature about Satan. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. In dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Yes, he's talking to the snake who is possessed by Satan. He's talking to Satan directly. Now, the snake will bear the brunt of this curse as creation does on the whole. When when mankind is cursed uh, in the fall, all creation suffers under it, and there's some specific ways in which that happens. And here you have the symbolism. It's not like the snake that you see today goes around thinking, oh man, I'm under a curse. Uh, That's not how the snakes don't think. At least not like that, I don't think. And they are who they are in God's creation. But it does remind you of this story every time. There's a certain symbolism here. There's a certain way in which uh, the snake illustrates what God did to Satan in judging him. Creation suffers in this way, and so it stands as a certain reminder to us. You know, on the positive side, whenever you see a rainbow, you think of God's grace shown in his promise to not send another flood. When you see a snake, I bet you think from time to time about the nature of the snake slithering and such, and just a bit of the degraded nature of Satan because of what is symbolized in the snake. Crawling low on the belly was a mark of deep degradation, and eating dust was also a sign of despair, one commentary said. Another one said, the serpent crawls on the ground and eats the dirt as a constant symbol of the degraded and defeated Satan. Snakes don't feel the curse, but they do illustrate it. And that's what we see in the opening salvo from God to Satan. But verse 15, perhaps the most important of all the verses in the most important chapter we're looking at, God declares something very clearly and autocratically. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God, the, God, the sovereign one, says to Satan, I will do this. It will happen. I'm committed to doing this. I promise to do this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now there will be a a bit of a cosmic conflict that goes forward from this point, Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, You've attacked humankind like this and done great damage. Now I will put an enmity between you and her and it will go forward. We'll see how this unfolds in the scriptures. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now he's speaking in terms of who will be the children of Satan in some sense and who will be her children. He shall bruise your head. Now he uses a singular term to describe the offspring of the woman. So now we're getting into the seed motif that unfolds in the scripture. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. This becomes a very important theme that plays itself out for the rest of the scriptures. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He promises ultimate destruction to Satan as the curse to Satan that's immediate. And it will unfold this way. There will be enmity between you and your seed and her seed. No question put to the serpent, just a declaration of curse and condemnation. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, Satan would be destroyed by the eventual seed of the woman. This is how the Bible can best be traced. And especially when you see Jesus in his time speaking to those who were supposed to be God's children, the religious leaders, who were actually servants of Satan. They were driving people away from faith in God's Messiah. And Jesus says famously in John 8, you are of your father, the devil, he says to the Pharisees. And your will is to do your father's desires. You do what your father wants, and your father's the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus draws this dichotomy you're either children of the devil or children of God. The curse on Satan in Genesis 3, though, also includes something else I want you to notice in verse 15, which will be the launching point for the last last verses in the chapter. But for now, look at it again. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The two lines, the two seeds flow from this passage, and the ultimate realization is the coming of the one who's anointed, the seed of the woman, the anointed one which is what Messiah means in Hebrew, and what Christ means in Greek. The anointed one, the seed of the woman, the Christ. That's who we're looking forward to now from this point forward. Always recognizing, are people aligned with the Christ, or are they align with Satan? If they're not aligned with Christ, they're aligned with Satan, or they're doing the work of Satan. That's the harsh reality of what people in the first Adam continue onward to do. Remember that God gave a clear requirement for mankind in Genesis 2. We call it a covenant. It's an agreement, a promise. The Lord said, You must, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's called the covenant of works. It's the first covenant set up. Do this and live. If you don't do this, you'll die. Straightforwardly. But... We have now God committing himself in covenantal language. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I will do this. I will commit to this. No longer can it be between God and man because man has fallen. It must be something God does. And it will be between, between God and the seed of the woman ultimately. in all those who are united in the seed... This is how the covenant, the second covenant that he makes, can be fulfilled. has to be done by that seed. It's this, the first covenant was one of, of works. The second one is of grace. And grace means, very simply but very importantly, it's God's undeserved favor shown to those who actually deserve wrath. Not just his undeserved favor shown. That's more mercy. But his undeserved favor shown to those who stand in judgment. Well, how is he going to do this? Well, he'll raise the second seed. The second seed will do what the first one failed to do. But he won't just do that in our place. He'll then take the punishment, justly taken. He'll qualify to take it because he's perfect, because he does what the first Adam fails to do, and he'll suffer under this. This is exactly what the picture is painting. He shall bruise your head, Satan. He'll crush your head. But you will bruise his heel. Not too long ago, I was clearing brush, and I was wearing a long pair of pants, and a wasp went up the side of my leg and got up to about halfway halfway up to my knee, and start biting me like crazy. And I didn't have time to pull my pant leg up and try to get and see what was doing and I just knew what it was doing, it's going to die. That's what was going to happen. So I grabbed, I grabbed the side of my leg and started bashing it as hard as I could. I didn't care how much it hurt, I was going to kill this thing and mush it all over. I knew it was some kind of insect gnawing on my leg. Of course, I pulled up my pant leg and there was a dismembered wasp there that fell down with its guts there in all sorts of... Uh, bite marks all over my leg that swell up and bruises from myself, punching myself in the leg. I was safe from it. I killed it. But it bruised me. Jesus stepped on the head of that snake at the cross. And as he's stepping on the head of the snake, he's crushing Satan. But that snake's biting, biting the heel, trying to get get one last shot at before it dies. That's the picture we have before us. The second Adam who's going to come. The seed of the woman who will bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Vivid picture for us. This is the first announcement of God's intention to send a second Adam to be anointed to undo the failure of the first Adam. This is what we might call the proto-gospel. Later, Paul writes of, of what's called Adam Christology all the time. He's constantly referring to how Christ is the second Adam. So, so, so many words describing Christ is the new representative that we must find ourselves in. That's the call to us as we're congregated. Just make sure you're not under the first Adam who is under the fall. Be under the second Adam who is Christ by faith, by believing on what he has done for us. That's how we are made new creatures. That's how the effects of the fall start to be reversed. Not in totality in this life. This is how we can relate with these struggles. But moving towards that direction to glory and this is what i will leave you with hopefully as some encouragement because it's a challenge when we think of our fallen nature and how difficult it is to know this is true of our nature even as believers we all struggle with falls into sin and we just be we bemoan who we are in our nature but to you christians you are not the same yes you still struggle yes you are defeated at moments but here's the key difference. You are struggling against sin. You would not struggle against sin if God was your enemy. You would just shake your fist at him. Instead, you feel the shame of it. You feel the guilt of it. But instead of being scared of your father, hiding from your father, you run to your father for the, what he can give you. He can restore you, and he, give you, he gives you that forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He says to his children all the time, come to me. So when you sin, yes, you feel that shame, but you're struggling against sin, which is a sign of God's sovereign work in your life, and you know you can go to him with your sin. This is why Isaiah says in so vivid a terms, "'Woe is me! I am undone. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts.'" He runs into the presence of God, not away from the presence of God. If you're a believer and you've sinned, come to the presence of God. You've already come into the house of God. And this is the only place you're in God's presence. I don't mean it that way. But the believer who's redeemed wants to go to the house of God. How good and pleasant it is. It's good to go to the house. Why? Because we all lay ourselves in front of the Lord knowing he sees all of it. And we know that we are sinners. We know we are under sinful, uh, deserve his wrath. But instead he gives us Christ. And we come to celebrate that and stand before our Father in Christ. Knowing he will not condemn us. He's not angry with you any longer. He's poured that out on Christ. And now, unlike Adam hiding with our pathetic constructions that we think can hide, we come bare. We confess our sins. We know God that you love us. You've proven it because you've sent the second Adam. And he's undone what the first Adam did. John 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Spirit of God has been given so that we are convicted of our sins and we are rightly turned to God. This is not new, though. David said something like this when he prayed in Psalm 51. And it's a good place to end, to think on. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's the attitude to take towards God. When we sense the sins we've committed, go to God. Say, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And when you go with confidence that he forgives you in Christ, that's the way that you have a regular restoration in your life as you walk through this fallen world that we're still part of until glory. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for the vivid picture that your word gives of our predicament and the solution for that predicament. Lord, I pray that you'd give us assurance of our salvation in Christ, uh, despite the conviction that we feel, really because of the conviction we feel, um, drive us towards our Savior. I pray, Lord, if anyone here is still finds himself aligned with the first Adam, that you, by your Spirit's work, would work to regenerate them and make them clear that they have to be. They have to be in Christ, in the second Adam. Pray that you give them faith to lay hold of him, grow our faith collectively in him, magnify him, in Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond by turning in our hymnals to 700, that's...